Thank you for downloading this episode of In Our Time. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk slash radio4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello. Centuries ago, when thinkers started to look at the world around them using the language of mathematics, they found that a few very important numbers seemed to underpin everything. Perhaps the best known of these is pi, the ratio of a circle's circumference to its diameter, which is roughly equal to 3.141. Less famous, but arguably every bit as important, is a number studied in the 18th century by the great Swiss mathematician Leonard Euler. He called it E, and in honour of him it's sometimes referred to as Euler's number. E begins 2.71828 and continues for an infinite number of decimal places. It's a number that can be found in all sorts of surprising places. It crops up in the study of interest rates, electronics and radioactive decay. A mathematician would also tell you that it's irrational, transcendental and part of the most beautiful equation ever written. With me to discuss the number known as E are Colbert Roney Dougal, reader in pure mathematics at the University of St Andrews, Vicky Neal, Whitehead Lecturer at the Mathematical Institute and Balliol College at the University of Oxford, and June Barrow-Green, Senior Lecturer in the History of Mathematics at the Open University. Colbert Dougal, most people come across pi in their maths classes. To be fewer familiar with E, would you give us a quick summary of what it is? Well, as you mentioned in your introduction, E is a number. It's a number between 2 and 3 that begins with 2.7. It goes on forever. But what's important about E, there's two main things. The first is that it's a number that just pops up again and again and again in a huge range of both pure maths and applications. So you mentioned some of them, but already we can have applications featuring things like the way that a hot coal will cool if you put it in a cool environment, the way in which populations of rabbits and foxes grow and shrink as the foxes catch the rabbits and the rabbits breed. Um, And in pure maths, we're going to see some applications during the show, including things like the number of prime numbers less than a given number. E appears everywhere. And the second thing that's really important about the number E, and in terms of the way it was discovered, is that this very small number is infinitely bound up with infinity. All of the ways that we define E involve infinite processes, and so to understand what the number E is, mathematicians had to get to grips with infinity. The, it was Pi was a number known to the ancient Greeks, but E wasn't discovered until about the 17th century. Um, Why did it take so long and how was it discovered? (laughs) Why it took so long is because the maths involved was considerably more advanced than was available to the Greeks. The maths involved was infinitely bound up with rates of change and of movement and of shifts in direction and we just didn't have the maths to talk about those until quite a bit later. How it was discovered... When you say you didn't have the maths, what does that actually mean? What maths didn't you have? Um, The Greeks were afraid of infinity in many ways. They were afraid by concepts such as Zeno's paradox, which says that to get from here to there, I first of all have to go half the distance from here to there. Then I have to go half the distance again. That makes me three quarters. Then I have to go half again. I'm now at seven eighths and then half again. And reasoning like that, I'm never going to get to the other side of this table. So they effectively banished all notion of infinity from their mathematics and would only consider finite processes which could be big but couldn't go on forever. The way in which E was first discovered was... In fact, thinking about compound interest, which might disturb our listeners to know that infinity is bound up with compound interest, (laughs) but uh, the Swiss mathematician Jacob Bernoulli 
was interested in the problem of suppose I borrow one pound and my credit rating is poor, so there's a 100% interest rate. If the interest is simply added on at the end of the year, then at the end of that year, I owe one pound plus one more pound, so I owe two pounds. But imagine instead that the interest is credited twice. So 50% gets added on after six months and 50% gets added on again at the end of the year. Well, after six months, I owe three over two pounds or one pound fifty. At the end of the year, I owe three over two times three over two or nine over four pounds, which is two pounds twenty five. That's what happens if it's credited twice. If it's credited three times, then after four months, I owe one and a third pounds. After eight months, I owe four thirds squared pounds. And after a year, I now owe four cubed over three cubed pounds, which is a little bit more than two pounds twenty five. He wondered what would happen if interest was added constantly, if we allowed the number of times that the interest was added to go off to infinity. So rather than twice or three times, it's added infinitely many times. And what he was able to show, so there's two ways you can think about it. We've got a number that looks like one plus one over n. So we started with uh, one plus a half when it was 50%. Um, and I'm raising it to the power n. That's the number of times I'm adding it. You could think that one plus one over n is very close to one and so it doesn't matter how many times I multiply it by itself it's still going to be one or you could think that it's a bit bigger than one and I'm multiplying it by itself infinitely often so it'll be infinity what Bernoulli was able to show is that in fact it's equal to a number between two and three and that number is e. On the w Thank you very much. Vicky Neal, on the way to getting there um, it, it sort of began to crop up in various other, not various other departments, if I can use that word, of mathematics. Um, in logarithms, for instance, I'm told in, solely invented by the Scot John Napier, it took him 20 years. What happened there? That's right. So uh, Napier was working in the late 16th century, early 17th century. I'm sure that Culver would like us to mention that uh, he studied at St Andrews for a while. Um, <laughs> He he did all sorts of things. So he he spent quite a lot of time, you know, managing the family estates. Uh, and in between those, as you do, he thought about maths, <laughs> and he thought about trying to solve problems that he could see around him with the help of mathematics. Um, so one of the problems that he was trying to address was that um, arithmetic is hard. So we have to remember that there were no computers, there were no pocket calculators to help. So anybody needing to do big calculations got a very large piece of paper and sat down for a long time and did them. Um, the astronomers of the day needed to do these big calculations. You know, they tried to predict the motion of the planets, what they could see around them. They needed to do big calculations. And that's sort of hard and time consuming. And Napier thought, wouldn't it be a good idea if we could make this process easier and quicker and also more accurate? Um, so the, the book he published... Um, he, he wrote about this problem of arithmetic being difficult. And he also said that the slippery errors creep in. I love this phrase, slippery errors, because I think we've all experienced slippery errors creeping into our calculations. I, no, I have. Um, the thing is, multiplication's difficult. If I, if I give you two five-digit numbers to multiply, it's going to take a long time. If I give you two five-digit numbers to add, that's going to be much quicker. Addition is much easier than multiplication. So Napier's fantastic idea was, wouldn't it be a good idea if instead of multiplying numbers, we could add instead? So he came up with this kind of idea that he called logarithms that enabled us to transform multiplication problems into addition problems, which then become much easier. What was his basic notion in constructing these logarithms? It's an extraordinary idea at the time. Look, uh, and 
how you let first of all what what was the basis of it yeah okay so i don't really want to tell you about the the finer details of exactly what no, napier did don't. no <laughs> okay <laughs> Let me tell you about how we sort of think about it nowadays. So his idea was multiplying is difficult, addition is easy. So one way that you can turn multiplication into addition is to write numbers as powers. So let me give you an example. If I want to do 2 to the power 6 times 2 to the power 7, that's quite straightforward because there are these laws of indices. There are these rules that tell me when I've got a uh, a power of 2 multiplied by another power of 2... I add the exponents, the numbers in the powers. So 2 to the 6 times 2 to the the 7. The little numbers at the top, exactly. Got it. So 2 to the power 6 times 2 to the power 7. I add the 6 and the 7. The little numbers at the top, I get 2 to the power 13. That was incredibly painless. I mean, that's 64 times 128. The answer is 8,192. I'm looking at the piece (laughs) of paper on which I wrote this down because I can't do this in my head. I can't do 64 times 128 in my head. I can do 2 to the power 6 times 2 to the power 7. That's precisely the point. You have drawn attention to it beautifully, Melvin. So the plan was to write numbers as powers of a fixed number. So... 2 to the 6 and 2 to the 7 are easy because the the little numbers, the exponents, are whole numbers. You have to worry about the numbers in between, but that can be done. Can you summarise why this was so useful in the age before calculators? Because Napier wanted this to be useful, and and obviously it was. Why and Uh, how? Absolutely. So the the reason that he was doing this was to address a very practical problem, which is that all sorts of people, you know, him looking after the grain on his family estates, but also astronomers, all the rest of it, are needing to do these huge calculations. And instead of having to multiply these numbers, you say, I'm going to get hold of Napier's book that he spent 20 years putting together these tables... And I look up some numbers there and add them and then look up the answer rather than having to multiply. So Napier had to do a phenomenal amount of work to produce the tables. But thereafter, everybody was able to use those. June Barrow-Green, how was his invention refined in the years immediately after it came up? Because he was 20 years on it and then a chap came, Uh, took four uh, days to get Briggs, four days to get Gresham Professor, four days from London to Edinburgh and... Then a miracle happened, really. Well, um, exactly. Um, well, Napier's um, logarithms, in fact, were logarithms not of integers, not of whole numbers um, or real numbers, but they were logarithms of signs to begin with. And that was one of the reasons for that. Well, the main reason for that was because, of course, the, the people who needed um, these calculations, as Vicky has mentioned, were the astronomers, people doing long-distance navigation, people doing geodesy and things like that. And they were... Those were exactly, they were using signs. That's the um, angles. They, they were working with angles and the sign, sign function was something that they were adding with. So Napier's logarithms were logarithms of signs. So that was one thing about them. Another thing about them was that they were not logarithms to the base 10, which is the base that people are probably most familiar with if you've ever seen a log table at school. Some of us are old enough to have used them. Um, but they were um, logarithms to uh, actually very closely approximately to the base of 1 over e. So this number e comes up again, but Napier didn't know e. He didn't, he didn't actually um, uh, think of the, them in, in those ways. And that's perhaps one of the reasons why sometimes Napier's, uh, Napier, Napierian logarithms are confused with natural logarithms, which are logarithms. What did Briggs do? Gresham Professor Briggs went to Edinburgh and we're told they sat opposite each other for 15 minutes without talking because they're so in awe of each other. I hope that's true. Well, I I, I think it's a great story. It's a great story. And then Briggs sort of took 
control. Yes. So, so Napier said he was tired. Yes, and and so um, Napier's logarithms and also Napier's logarithms were were rather cumbersome to calculate. The, the method that he had devised to calculate them, and um, included in his calculations, when you had to um, when you multiplied two numbers together and the logarithms were adding them, he also um, had to have an additional factor, which was the logarithm of one. Now, in Napier's system, the logarithm of one was a nine-digit number. So this really complicated the, the computation. And so one of the things that, that came out of Briggs's um, meeting with Napier was the fact that they decided that it was much better if you had the logarithm of one being zero. So then you get, you get rid of it in terms of the calculations. And then also you have logarithms to the base 10 because you have logarithms, the logarithm of 10 becomes one, the logarithm of 100 becomes two, um, and so on. So, so that really facilitated uh, the calculations. Now, Napier, by this time, it was uh, Briggs meets him, I think it's in 1615, meets him again in 1616. Napier dies in 1617, and Napier's not terribly well. So Briggs goes back, and he calculates the logarithms and produces a table himself of, actually, of integers, not of signs, um, in 1617. And then in 1624, these get published, and they become the basis of the logarithms, the log- logarithmic tables that we all, you know, well, as I say, those of us who were educated in the 60s um, are familiar with. And so this was a huge kind of breakthrough. And he copied it all out by hand, and, yeah, and this lasted uh, 300 years, yes, those I mean, two summers. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. And the, the number of co- computations were phenomenal um, to produce these tables. Um, and, and also another thing that one has to think about, not only just... Um, uh, writing out these numbers, then they get printed. We're getting carried away by logarithms. Yep. <laughs> I mean, you can easily get carried away from it, or you can easily look at the logarithms and think, right, never mind what you think when you're. Anyway, look, can you. Where does E crop up? Um, so, um, so E crops up because, um, uh, as I've said, that log- uh, Napier's, the, the Napierian logarithms were to the base E, which means um, that if you raise E to the power, um, of uh, a number, then that is the logarithm of of that number. So e, e to the po- e to the power two, um, for example, e- equals something. Did uh, they know? Did they? Did Briggs and Napier know about e? No. So what no. were they? Well, you're calling it e. Yes. What did they call the, the, it? They didn't. They didn't. Call, they didn't call it e. So what did um, they call it? Um, I don't know actually. Oh. Well. Um, <laughs> it's um, so it's a, <laughs> so so yes. Yeah, so it didn't. It although it. It actually appears for the first time. There's um, a table of uh, of logarithms that are produced in sixty a couple of years after Napier's, which are tables of logarithms to the base e. But again, it doesn't appear as a name. Um, uh, so the first the first time it's actually named is in about sixteen sixty eight, I think, um, in in a publication. Then and it, and it, it it actually appears. Right, well, let's go on with this journey towards E and Colver Rooney-Dougal again. Um, one of the most important uses of E is in a branch of mathematics called calculus. Um, so can we talk briefly? I mean, we're only talking about Newton and Leibniz and calculus. Never mind. Uh, rates of change, calculus, very important for cannonballs and planets and everything else. Right. Where does E crop up? 
Okay, so yes, calculus is the maths of rates of change and of their opposite of rates of change, which is accumulation. So for example, my rate of change of distance is my speed, my rate of change of speed is my acceleration, and conversely, my accumulation of acceleration is my speed, and my accumulation of my speed is the distance that I've travelled. So that's what calculus is about. On the one hand, rates of change, and on the other hand, accumulation. The way in which E first appears in this context, or the way in which we now think of E as appearing in this context, it wasn't quite seen as that initially, is that we've been talking lots about E to the power this and E to the power that. So slowly there was appearing the idea of a function called E to the X. And what that means is I pick a value of X and then I multiply E by itself that many times and that's what E to the X, X is. X could be 11. X could be 11 and the answer then would be E to the 11. Right. which is a horrible, messy number, but anyway. Um, well, it's a now, football team. The magic thing about e to the x is if I look at what that function's doing at any point, its value is the same as its rate of change at that point. So if I look... Can you just say that again? Slowly? Absolutely. Yeah. Right. So if I look at, say, e to the naught is 1... If I look at the slope of the curve of e to the x at the value naught, then it's going up 1 for every 1 that it's going along. Right. E to the 1 is E. If I look at the slope of the curve at 1, it's going up E for every 1 that it's going along. So it's a magic value, E, in that it's equal to its own rate of change when I look at the function E to the x. Now, we have Leibniz and Newton arguing, not arguing, uh, they did dispute who was the true originator of calculus. We'll have to leave that to one side <laughs> at the moment. Leibniz was beguiled by infinite numbers. Newton was beguiled by everything to do with mathematics. Where were they? How did they take calculus to get towards E? The way in which they took calculus to get towards E was they properly understood the way in which calculus could be applied to infinite sums. So they weren't working with e to the x the way I just explained it to you. They were working with e to the x as a big, complicated infinite sum, which I'm hoping somebody's going to get right for this show in a minute. Um, and what they started realising was that if you wanted to find the slope of these infinite sums, then they could do so by working term by term. So each term looked something like a little quadratic, say x squared on 2, and they knew how to find the slope of x squared on 2. So what they brought in was the ability to find these slopes of things that look complicated, like e to the x. I'm going to go to Vicky Neal. What's fascinating with these scientists, and along, it's curiosity, isn't it? Curiosity for the sake of curiosity. It's like ars, gra ars gratiati, art for the sake of art. It's, it's just maths for the sake of maths. They're, they aren't saying this is going to make electronics or tell us about population growth. They're just going on doing it. Getting past that, uh, Vicky. Um, <laughs> let's continue about calculus. There's two. Uh, we've got two main operations there: integration and differentiation. Right. Yes. Okay. So, how have I got uh, the job of explaining <laughs> differentiation and integration in two minutes flat? Uh, well, Covers set this up. So, so differentiation is about finding rates of change. So that's thinking about um, my train journey coming to do this program today. Um, thinking about finding my speed. So if I know how far I've travelled and I know the time it took, how far, you know, what, what was my speed, I can find my average speed, but what I really want is my speed at a particular time. So I travelled about 60 miles in about an hour, so my average speed was about 60 miles an hour, but I wasn't doing 60 miles an hour the whole time. I, mean, I, I got on the train, it wasn't moving for a start. <laughs> then it speeded up, went faster than 60 miles an hour for a bit, slowed down for another station and so on. So this... Bits about finding rates of change, finding the speed 
at this moment. So I can find the average speed over the course of an hour, or I can find the average speed of five minutes. I could think, well, in this five-minute section of my journey, how far have I travelled? And then do that distance divided by five minutes, find my average speed for that. I could keep doing that in shorter and shorter sections of time. What I really want to find my speed right now is to do that in a sort of infinitely short period of time, whatever that might mean. Well, whatever that might mean is is where Newton and Leibniz came in, is, is making sense of that rather difficult, rather subtle notion. So they were building on work of others, but they, they were able to kind of pin down what that was. So in terms of a graph, that's finding the slope of the graph, the gradient of a graph at a particular point. So if I've got a straight line, it's easy to find the gradient. That's how far I've gone up divided by how far I've gone across. If I've got a curve, it's a little bit more subtle. That's where differentiation comes in. Um, then integration is kind of the reverse of that. So this this is a phenomenon that crops up all over mathematics. You have a process that you use in one direction and then you ask, can I undo that process? And actually, I suspect that we're going to touch on this with in the context of natural logarithms and the exponential functions because they're inverses of each other. So integration is the process of undoing differentiation. It's if instead of telling you the distance at each time and ask you the speed, that would be where differentiation comes in. If instead I tell you my speed at each point and say, can you tell how far I've travelled? That would be where integration comes in. That's a rather brief introduction to, to quite subtle ideas. Very clear. You have to concentrate hard if you're me, but it's very <laughs> clear. Very clear. June, uh, Barrow Green. Uh, so the number E turns out to particular significance in calculus. Did Leibniz or Newton feel that there was this... No, your head shaking. Uh, right. What can, well, can you watch the particular function of E in calculus? Well, I mean, I think as, as Culver has already um, uh, explained, really, the fa- it's the fact that when you differentiate it, you get the same function back again. So e to the x is differentiated, um, the exponential function, when differentiated is itself again. And of course, um, and it's not just e to the x, any exponential function, so a natural, because e is just a number. Um, and so any uh, number, say like a, a to the x, if you differentiate that, you get itself back again times a, a constant so and so this number um, e, e um, when uh, raised to the power x and you get it back and you get it back again when you differentiate it means that um, it, it tells us about rates rates of change um, that are um, uh, that are proportional so that the, the rate of change is uh, of e to the x um, is, is you get a proportion um, so um, and this is very important in particular some of the, as the things that um, Vicky has mentioned, particularly in, in things like population growth and so on. Can I bring Culver in here? We, and there's a lot of exponentials on what's going on here. Can we? I'm not asking you to simplify, but I am no, asking but you one to of, clarify. One of the early ways that E actually appears in calculus wasn't as E to the X. It was as the opposite, as Vicky just mentioned. It was as the natural logarithm. So people had been interested in integration. The natural logarithm. The natural so logarithm. therefore it's differentiating from another sort of logarithm. Uh, the natural logarithm means what number do I need to raise e to to get the number I'm thinking of? So the natural log of 2 is the power that I have to raise e to to get 2. So that's 0.69-ish. And the way in which this pops up in calculus is that people were interested in the areas under curves. This goes back to pre-calculus and Fermat. And they knew how to find the area under various curves like x squared and x and all these other different powers of x 
but x to the minus one had been left as this unsolvable problem. Nobody could work out what the area was under the curve um, y equals one over x. So if you picture it, it shoots up to infinity at x equals naught because we're not allowed to divide by naught and then it slowly comes down and disappears off to naught as x goes off to infinity. So we want to find the area of the curve from x equals one to some arbitrary point. And what was slowly realised was that the area under that curve is described by the natural logarithm function. People took a while to realise that it was log to the base e. What they had was one of these infinite series expansions describing the area under the curve. And sometime after the fact, they realised that infinite series expansion was in fact the natural log. Before we come to Euler and the, and, and, and the e in plain view, can you tell us where we might encounter the exponential function, which has been referred to in the real world? Well, yeah, I mean, mathematics is the real world, of course. <laughs> you mathematics is the real world, but in this shadow world in which the rest of us live. Uh, it's everywhere. Um, one of the ways we encounter it um, might describe quite well one thing that might have puzzled some listeners. So if we think about radioactive substances, they're always described as their radioactivity in terms of a concept called a half-life, which is the amount of time it takes for half of the substance to decay. So you'll hear people talking about the half-life of uranium or whatever, um, and, and hence how long we have to look after nuclear waste for. Well, the reason why we have to talk about it in that slightly strange way is that individual atoms decay randomly. All I can say is that they've got a certain probability of decaying in any given, say, minute. So that means when I want to describe what's going on with the decay of that substance, I need to say that the rate of change of the amount of the substance as it decays is proportional to how much of it there is. In fact, it's negatively proportional to how much of it there is because it's decaying. So when you solve an equation like the rate of change of this is proportional to itself, that means you exactly get an answer out looking like e to the something. Fine. June, <clears throat> June back, back to you. The... The, um, let's now move to Euler, the mathematician I mentioned at the beginning. Um, can you tell us a little about him before we go into yes. what he did? Yes. I mean, Euler is the mathematician of the 18th century, without, without doubt. His life spans the 18th century. Um, he was born in 1707. He dies in 1783. And he's probably, and we always say probably because one can never be sure, but he's probably the most prolific mathematician that has ever lived because uh, I think right at this moment his collected works reach something like 75 volumes, 25... Um, uh, and they're still publishing, and that's you know well over 200 years after his, his death. And there's just not a subject he didn't touch, really, in mathematics and physics. So you just name any, any subject, whether it's ballistics, astronomy... Uh, number theory, cartography, um, shipbuilding, um, algebra, you know, it was just extraordinary, um, his output. And the other, one of the things is uh, really uh, important about him is that he published, and he, pu and he published like mad. And before him, people like Newton, for example, is well known for being very sec secretive about his work and not publishing. For Euler, you know, publishing was really, you know, he wanted to get it out there, and he published in different languages, he also uh, corresponded um, with lots of people and his correspondence, we've got something like 3,000 letters in the Euler correspondence. Some of the letters are written 
he changes language in the middle of the letters. I mean, he was he had he was just phenomenal in. I had a phenomenal memory. I mean, there's just so much about him. And he spent a lot of his time as the court mathematician in uh, Russia. Uh, yes, he did. He started and he had off thirteen children. He did, and, and he, he went had blind two, halfway through his, his life, life, and his yep. children helped him to get on with the job. Yep, and he had he had two wives. Um, his house burnt down at some point. Um, I mean, all, all, I mean, he was he he spent his first bit of his working life in St Petersburg. Then he goes to Berlin. Then he goes back to St Petersburg, and um, and of the things that he wrote, apart from all the, the masses of mathematical papers, there are a number of books, and one of them is uh, particularly important in the context of E, and that's the uh, the text that he wrote in 1748. Can the, we move? A, can, sorry, can we move to Vicky now? The the the. the and just just a share of it. How did he investigate the properties of E? He did all sorts of things, and um, as Jude mentioned, some of his work was really very practical, kind of dealing with with very specific real world problems that were there. Some of it was playing around with mathematics for the sake of playing around with mathematics. And my sort of hunch is that that's a rather artificial distinction that he thought he was just investigating interesting things. So um, he was working in this period just after people were really kind of understanding what calculus was all about, starting to explore things like infinite series. So um, adding together infinitely many things. So if I've got 10 things on my piece of paper, I can add them together. That 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 might take me a while if I'm not very good at addition, but it, it's going to be a manageable thing. If I've got infinitely many things I want to add together, that's a more daunting prospect. And it's also quite a subtle prospect because... I have to be very careful to make sure that I understand what kind of answer I'm going to get out at the end. And sometimes when you add together infinitely many things, it doesn't converge. You sort of get something that, that doesn't behave in a, in a meaningful way. Sometimes you get a nice, sensible answer. So one of the things that um, Euler did was was play around with these infinite series relating to E and to the exponential function. So the exponential function is this function E to the X that... Um, Culver has talked about already, so very closely bound up with properties with E. So it turns out, for example, that you can write E as an infinite series. So you can write this this decimal that we sort of find slightly hard and this 2.7 something, and I can never remember what comes after the 7 because it's kind of complicated and unpredictable. But there's this beautiful series, this sum of infinitely many things I can add together to get E, and it's beautiful because it's very predictable. So it's 1 plus 1 over 1, plus 1 over 2, plus 1 over 6, plus 1 over 24, and so on. And the, the denominators there, the numbers on the bottom of those fractions, form a very nice series, it's very, sequence, it's very very easy to write down. So Euler played around with a number of things related to this, just kind of testing out, you know, what, what, what can I find here? So, um, so I've just told you about a series for E. There's also a series for E to the X. And one of the things that he did was, was play around with that and see what he could, could come up with there. Colbert, he also known for something known as the Euler identity. It's been described as the most beautiful equation in mathematics. Can you tell us what a, that equation is? And this is where E comes into its own. So e is now on the map. Absolutely. So this is a, a justly famous equation. Um, I'll say it slowly because it features uh, five of the most important numbers in mathematics. So the equation is E to the power of I times pi plus one is zero. So I should tell our listeners what the various bits of that mean. Um, and I'll also, if we've got time, briefly say where it came from. So I is the square root of negative one. 
Now, obviously, there is no number that if you multiply it by itself, you get minus one, because if you multiply a number by itself, you get a positive number. But a little bit before Euler, mathematicians had said, well, let's just pretend. Let's just call i the square root of negative one. So let's imagine. Let's imagine, hence imaginary number. And they discovered that maths works when you do that. The, the equations you write down behave themselves, and you can solve real-life problems that you couldn't solve without putting this imaginary number, the square root of minus one, around. And they realised that you could represent um, numbers like the square root of minus one by instead of thinking about the number line, let's imagine the number plane. So everything's gone two-dimensional. So I've got i, 2i, 3i at right angles to the real numbers 1, 2, 3, 4. We think of 1, 2, 3, 4 going off to infinity along the x-axis of our graph and the complex numbers i, 2i, 3i going off to infinity on the y-axis of our graph. So that's what the i bit is. Pi we've mentioned already, that's coming from circles. So in this context, it's a measure of an angle. Rather than 360 degrees for a circle, we're going to say how much of the radius of a, the circumference of a circle it is, so pi is a half turn. So what e to the i pi plus 1 equals naught is telling us is that if you take e to the power i pi, then you do a 180 degree twist and you're now at minus 1, so um, minus 1 on the x-axis. June Barrigan, what makes the, the Euler identity such an intriguing piece of mathematics beside the fact that it uses the five most important numbers? Well, it also um, uses three of, uh, of, the, of the basic operations. So it uses the uh, multi multiplication, addition, and an exponentiation. And, of course, it's, it's involving uh, these important numbers, which are not, we haven't just got numbers coming in here. As Culver's shown us, we've got angles coming in as well. Um, so for, from a mathematical point of view, it, it, it contains all the things that mathematicians use in various different fields all the time. And it's just encapsulated in this really short equation that you can just write down and, and as you've mentioned I think probably any mathematician you ask it will come up as in their list of uh, one of their sort of favorite uh, equations for the for this reason because of uh, including these five uh, numbers and these three operations. Um, Vicky then uh, I mentioned at the beginning of this program that e is an irrational number it's also can you tell us what your that means? Yes, yes. It doesn't mean that it behaves erratically uh, and unpredictably and goes out on the town, except it does behave erratically and unpredictably in some ways. Um, but it's sort of, it's the opposite of rational. And rational, a rational number is one that can be written as the ratio of two whole numbers. So it's a fraction. So a half and two thirds and minus four fifths are all rational numbers. They're the ratios of two integers. Um, and we're somehow go through primary school and we learn about whole numbers and then we learn about negative whole numbers and then we learn about fractions and we learn how to add these and things on. And our experience kind of mirrors the way in which mathematicians have come across these things. So these are all quite familiar, quite safe numbers. But then you might wonder, are there any numbers out there that can't be written as the ratio of two whole numbers that aren't a fraction? And it's sort of quite hard to imagine them, but then it turns out that there are. Um, in fact, it turns out there are inconceivably more of these things than you could possibly imagine. Somehow our experience at primary school is entirely, <coughs> entirely unrepresentative. Almost every number cannot be written as a fraction, is irrational. The rational ones are quite, quite unusual. Um, so one very famous example of an irrational number is the square root of two. 
and that goes right back to the ancient Greeks. The ancient Greeks knew that square root of two was irrational. Some of them were a bit unhappy about it being irrational, which is possibly why this kind of um, atmosphere has arisen about these things being slightly strange things. Um, so it turns out that E is another example of an irrational number. And that's somehow not terribly surprising because if you pick any old number, the chances are it's irrational because there are so many more of them than there are rational numbers. The difficult bit is proving that it's irrational. You might guess that it is because you haven't got any other information, but actually proving that it's irrational requires quite a bit of work. Um, so one of the properties that, that irrational numbers have is that their decimal expansions are difficult to understand. So a rational number, a fraction, when you look at its uh, decimal expansion, it's periodic. You get these repeating blocks. So a third is 0.333333 recurring. You might get a number that has a block of six digits that recur, but it's still recurring. A number like the square root of two or e or pi, these irrational numbers, aren't like that. There is no recurring block. They they, they keep behaving in kind of... So, so if you want to know the millionth digit of the decimal expansion, you kind of have to do some work to find it. You can't just guess based on the fact that it's this repeating block. During uh, Barry Green, it's also transcendental. Really getting a lot of uh, (coughs) adjectives to it. (laughs) A lot of baggage this year, hasn't it? Right. Right. Okay. well, away you go. Okay. well, (laughs) so um, it's it's part of, uh, as Vicky says, it's irrational. Now, um, uh, there's a, a bunch of irrational numbers that have a particular property, and E is one of those numbers. And what that means is that it, it's not uh, the solution of an algebraic, what we call an algebraic equation with rational coefficients. Now, let me explain what that means. It's an equation. So let's take something like x squared minus 5x plus 6 equals 0. So we have... That's, that's, an, that's the easy way around, is it? Yeah, right. <laughs> so, so that's an equation. It's okay. got rational coefficients. Vicky's explained what rational means. And so if you've solved that equation, I think uh, it should be something like x equals 2, x equals 3, other solutions. Now, you can have an equation that uh, includes uh, irrational um, numbers as the solution. So, for example, x squared minus 2 equals 0. We get root 2 as a solution. So that's fine. We've picked up all these, these numbers like, um, like root 2 and so on. But are there numbers that don't fit into that scheme? And in fact, it turns out that E is one of those numbers. You cannot write down an equation, uh, as I say, an algebraic equation with rational coefficients, um, which E, and for that matter, pi, is going to be a solution. Now, um, Why does that make it transcendental? Um, is that just a word to grab well, your so attention? It, or what well, does it I mean, mean? It, it, it's, a wor- it's a way of describing these numbers. In fact, the, the word was first used by Leibniz um, in the 17th century. But it wasn't until the um, 19th century that a French mathematician, Joseph Louville, um, proved that these numbers existed. As Vicky has, has mentioned, I mean, we, we can think that these numbers might exist, but it's a completely different thing to prove that they exist. And, and Louville did that, and he didn't only do that, he, he found some um, transcendental numbers um, that... that so he didn't only prove that they existed, he actually found some. But E wasn't one of the ones he found. It was believed that E was uh, transcendental, but it took until 18, uh, eight, uh, 1873, I think, um, when Charles Hermite, a French mathematician, um, uh, proved that, uh, that E was actually one of these transcendental numbers. Colver, can we talk about its, the many applications? And, and I, like a lot of listeners, 
quite interested in the applications because the pure science is fascinating. But the applications, right, we haven't got as much time as I thought. We've had a signal <laughs> from through the window. Um, right, let's talk about the application in statistics. Very good. Uh, well, incredibly briefly, lots of our listeners will have heard about the bell curve, uh, the normal distribution. This will have been heard about in the context of, say, IQ. Famously, uh, Francis Galton, who was Charles Darwin's uh, cousin, discovered this. This is the distribution of the chest circumferences of Scottish soldiers. It pops up all over the place when we're measuring things. If you picture that bell curve, it turns out that the equation describing that curve is a multiple of e to the minus x squared on 2. So this number e is popping up in the very nature of randomness itself. What other applications can we think of? As we, as can we... I tell you about prime numbers? Please do, but my goodness, you've got to do it quickly. I'm awfully sorry. To, I seem to lay the sprints on you. OK, there, there, there are loads of prime numbers in the world. There are infinitely many prime numbers, but if I want to count how many prime numbers there are up to some point, if I want to know how many prime numbers there are up to a million or a billion or a squillion, uh, the way to do that uh, is the prime number theorem, one of the most celebrated theorems in number theory, um, proved right at the end of the 19th century, and the number of prime numbers up to x is x divided by the natural logarithm of x, approximately. So the natural logarithm is cropping up even when we're counting prime numbers, these numbers whose factor only factors one in themselves. It's all about whole numbers, but to count those, we're using this natural logarithm function. Right. Now, do you have an application? Um, I, I don't, but what I do want to mention, because I don't think it's been mentioned so far, is, is why E is called E. Um, oh, good. What a good way to end. <laughs> because, I that <laughs> because um, E is, it is often referred to as Euler's number, and some people have thought that um, it was because Euler was the first to actually publish it in his uh, book, The Mechanica, in uh, 1736. But in fact... Um, Euler was a very modest man. It's very E-U-L-E-R. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that could yeah. be E of his name. Yes, yeah. the, the, the first letter of his name. Yeah. And so, in fact, it's probably thought that he chose E because it was just the next available letter. A, B, C and D had already been... He'd already used them up. So E was the obvious choice. So um, that's the answer. That's the answer for E. <laughs> any, any other... Um, any variations on this? Well, have we got the whole morning? <laughs> <laughs> I just wondered if, if you have completely accepted June's explanation, which I do wholly, and I thank the three of you very much indeed for taking me through this, and I hope I can retain it for as long as possible. No, I really enjoyed that, and I hope a lot of other people did. It's good to be back. Next week we'll be talking about Julius Caesar, Roman general, statesman and writer. Thank you very much for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. It's... um. Do you find when, well, of course you don't, because you're mathematicians, so you move along mathematicians, that when you say x squared plus thing equals zero, that people think, oh, they go... The algebra. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, is that true? I think it, it I'm hoping Except it is we, becoming less true. I think there yeah. is a, a point in school when things become a little bit more abstract and some people sort of, for whatever reason, find it difficult to keep up at that point. Once you've had that experience of being terrified, it's very difficult to get beyond that. I think some people have that experience of being terrified by the abstraction a little bit later in their mathematical careers. But, um... Yeah, I mean, if you're going to freeze when you hear the phrase x squared, then you're not going to remember that the next bit was minus 5x plus 6, so holding it all in your head's going to be a little bit more difficult. Yeah. What um... are you finding at the universities about people come into mathematics? Are they daunted by the the, the 
complications of the city. I, Except I, I, at the I, same time, it, the Euler's identity, that equation is looks very simple, doesn't yes. it? Yes. I, I, I mean, I do think that there is this fear factor, which is quite difficult to dislodge. Yeah. With um, And sometimes it comes up with sort of certain words. So before they even start... You know, you say, well, we're going to be doing, you know, some algebra or something. And just the word algebra and and, you know, that is something that's somehow in the culture a bit. I mean, we do hear it, unfortunately, um, too much. So so sometimes it's almost the words themselves, I think, kind of. And they, they, they haven't even they don't even know what it is. But somehow they've heard that algebra is frightening. Yeah. And if, if you if you focus <coughs> on the concepts of maths and you yeah. sort of think about the intuition and, and, and unpicking what's going on. on. Yeah. That's what mathematicians do all the time. Right. And in a way, one of the things that I think maybe people who don't feel they're mathematicians, the reason that they're struggling is that they find it very difficult to get to that stage because they're so inhibited by the kind of baggage of the mm. notation yeah. and the, the dis- way it's phrased and so on. So some of my, you know, I've, I've come across undergraduates who have this, when they reach university maths, and it's getting beyond those kind of barriers of the language in which to articulate it, just understanding what's going on. I always find in conversations with taxi drivers, so they ask what I do and I tell them that I'm a mathematician, and there's two standard responses. One is that they always loved maths, but life just didn't pan out correctly for them to, to continue and become a mathematician themselves. And the other is always to point to some incredibly painful incident that happened to them in a school maths class when they were about seven or eight. And Mrs. Whatever told them off for not understanding. And then ever since, they've had a block. Mm. Um, So it's amazing how, actually, for such an abstract subject, people relate quite emotionally to their own feelings of how good they are at maths. And almost that sense of, oh, I'm terrible, um, is stronger yeah, clever, than it would be clever, for almost anything else. The clever yeah. people knew maths, didn't they? Yeah, well, maths and, and physics, yes, those are the tough subjects. Well, well and also I think it's because, as, as Cole said, I mean, it's this, it's this moment, you have a bad moment, and if you're not rescued very, very quickly, then you're lost, yeah. you, because everything else is piling on top. Are you lost in other subjects? Or just yeah. in the, oh, here's Tom, therefore we <laughs> stop this chat, and, and we perhaps get a cup of tea. Yes, tea. <laughs> uh, coffee or... There are many more Radio 4 arts and discussion programmes to download for free. Find these on the website at bbc.co.uk slash radio4.